So welcome to another episode of Macquarie Street Matters. I'm here with Freya Leach. Now, Steph Labar is, <sighs> is, is in the United Kingdom yes. on her post-university multi-month tour. I'm so, jealous. So yes. it's going to be uh, Freya and I for the next little while doing Macquarie Street Matters. I'm happy to report that one of our big fans is none other than Chris Mintz. Apparently so. I mean, he is such a fan that he said himself in Question Time, it's going on Hansard forever, that Joe Rogan, if you don't know Joe Rogan, he's the biggest podcaster of all time, Joe Rogan is petrified of our podcast. But perhaps some clarity, Mr. Speaker, can be found from the member for Warunga. Can inform the house that there's a new podcast in town. Whoa! The member for Warunga has started a podcast. A podcast. In this exciting podcast, Joe Rogan would be absolutely petrified, of course, by his speaker. Big shout out from the Premier. I thought he would have been too busy trying to pull up what has been a pretty inexperienced, not very competent government so far, but apparently. He can put aside time to listen to this podcast. Always so that's great. time for him to learn how to actually govern by listening to Macquarie Street we, we are happy to help. We, we are happy to help. And Chris, if you're watching today, thank you. And we hope that this can help. So, Freya, the, 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 the political issues of the week, mm. um, I guess the, the, the first thing that really stood out was the fact that we had industrial action by frontline workers. The Health Services Union mm. went on strike at several locations around the state. Jared Hayes, the, uh, the leader of the union, said that actually they were better off under the coalition government than they are under Labor, which... Isn't that ironic? Which is an ironic thing. Of course, he is absolutely right, because the big lie that Labor has, has produced was that somehow public servants and frontline workers did poorly under the coalition. Mm. For those first 10 years of the coalition government, Public sector wages in New South Wales under our wages cap grew more quickly than private sector mm. wages and they grew more quickly than inflation. So the public sector unions did very well under the coalition. The interesting thing is that we've now seen a little bit of, well, more than a bit of hypocrisy. Labor saying that they support frontline workers, but they actually went to the Industrial Relations Commission last week to get orders to stop the paramedics from being able to strike. So all that talk about the paramedics before the election, now they're taking them to court. So hypocritical. It's just, it's, it's beyond belief. And, and just think about all of the hours of work lost, all of the inconvenience to New South Wales citizens, to our community, and the lie that Labor's been perpetuating throughout this entire election campaign that the Liberals are the enemy of healthcare workers, of teachers, of the public sector, and now for them to turn around and all of a sudden realise that you can't lift the wages cap and basically promise to deliver on any union agreement while also trying to maintain a strong budget, while also trying to build whatever you've promised to build. I mean, they're already cutting infrastructure. They're already barely promising more than what we were in terms of a wage rise. And now they're already copping the heat from the Labor unions. And Jared Hayes saying that 
that his union members were better off under a coalition government. That sounds like buyer's remorse to me if I've ever heard it. <laughs> That's right. I mean, I wonder when the unions will start campaigning for the Liberals. That'd be a, an interesting turn of events. <laughs> well, I, I must say that, you know, Chris Rath, who's going to be our guest on this episode, has some really interesting statistics mm. around the decline in union membership. Yeah. And it, it's, it's apparent mm. that... that a lot of rank and file workers have lost faith yeah. in the trade union movement and the Labor Party, which is the political wing mm. of the trade union movement over time. We'll, we'll yeah. hear a bit more about that. So we're, we're, we're going to have the Honourable Chris Rath on this episode. We're going to do a wrap up of the week in Parliament with mm -hmm. him and the legislation that went through. But we've also got a couple of other political issues that have come out as well just to discuss. So one of the narratives that the new New South Wales Labor government wants to uh, promote mm. is the idea that they have inherited mm. this terrible set of numbers and budget and all the rest of it from the coalition government, the former coalition government. Now, of course... This is all a big ruse. The fact of the matter is there are only two governments in Australia with a AAA credit rating. One is New South Wales because of the 12 years of economic management by the coalition. And the other is Western Australia who gets huge amounts of royalties from mining in mm. Western Australia to prop up the state government. So all of these crocodile tears from Labor about the state of the budget, what they are really trying to do is to create a smokescreen to justify yeah. why they are going to cut programs, really popular programs of the mm -hmm. coalition, like the Active Kids vouchers that we spoke about last week, yeah. but a whole lot of things that you've already made mention of, infrastructure and all the rest of it. But you know what this reminds me of? There's this Thomas Sowell quote that says, the first rule of economics is scarcity, and the first rule of politics is to forget the first rule of economics. So you actually can't promise, promise, promise without any way of delivering it. And so, and the problem is, Labor, they're going to do the exact same thing that Albanese did federally, which is hide behind this narrative that, you know, we have to make tough decisions. But really, it's because they've overpromised and they have no way of delivering. And their priorities are warped. And, and they knew that they couldn't yeah. deliver all that they promised. Mm. The other thing that came out in, in Question Time this week was a series of questions which really arose out of two ministers last week in the new Labor government making reference to cabinet documents of the former coalition government. Now, under all rules of law and convention of parliament, the ministerial code and the like, the new government is not supposed to have access to those cabinet documents of the previous government. Under the Gipper Act, you can't access cabinet documents for 10 years. And under the ministerial code, even if they got access to documents, they're not supposed to disclose them publicly. But that's what we saw last week. When asked about it this week in Parliament, the Premier denied that they'd received any such documents, even though his two ministers had referred to them in the previous week. So that's going to be a little wow. bit of an interesting issue that has a bit of uh, 
bit to run. So, Alistair, could we see an ICAC investigation less than two months into the new Labor government? Well, look, you know... It's I'm, okay not to comment on that I'm one. Not, I'm not going to comment on that, but what I can say is that it is of great concern that there are already integrity and probity and ministerial code issues being raised mm. about ministers in this new government. Mm. This might seem like a really small thing, like, oh, who cares about some cabinet documents? But the problem is what this symbolises about the whole government. Is this how sloppy they're going to be? Like, they are just going to be totally in breach of codes that they should know about. They are now the ministers. Well, well, the other thing, too, is that we now have three different positions. One minister, the, the sports minister, said one thing. Then the minister for local government said another thing in parliament. Then the premier said another thing entirely again. So it's also a question of just basic you yeah. know, consistency. Who, who, who's to be believed? Because you can't have three different positions and all three of them being correct. No, and it doesn't bode well for them given we're only two months into this new government and they already can't get their story straight. Indeed. Well, look, that's a great chat about the, the, the issues this week. I think it's now time that we have a chat with the Honourable Chris Rand. Let's bring Chris on. It's great to welcome my special guest this week, the Honourable Chris Rath, who is the opposition whip in the Legislative Council and obviously a member of the Legislative Council. Welcome, Chris. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, Chris, we often talk about a different Chris on this podcast, <laughs> but it's great to have the Royal Deal in you to, to come and join us. Tell us a little bit about your political journey. So joined the Young Libs when I was really young, at 16, in Wollongong, which is not exactly liberal heartland. It's one of the steel towns, just like Newcastle, where you grew up, Alistair. And um, was really driven to the Liberal Party at that time when John Howard was Prime Minister and Peter Costello was Treasurer, in the sort of final days of the Howard government. Really agreed with what they were doing in terms of economic management and economic reform, so joined really young and then moved up to live on campus at Sydney Uni in my first year and sort of got the political bug. I never thought when I was, you know, 16 or 17 that I would ever seek a position in Parliament, but got the political bug quite young and sort of slowly worked towards, towards getting into Parliament about a year ago. Worked in various capacities leading up to that, including most recently six and a half years at IAG, one of uh, Australia's big insurers, as well as having served on the Liberal Party's state executive for that, that time as well for about six years. And, and Chris, looking at your inaugural speech again, as I did last night, just to get ready for today's podcast, yeah. you, you clearly have a very strong ideological commitment to classic liberalism mm. you, you you spoke about many of the great liberal philosophers like uh, john stuart mill and yeah. others that must be something that you draw upon in your role now as a as a member of parliament absolutely i think for me i do fundamentally agree with the harm principle as outlined by mill and others that really we should be free to do what we want as individuals so long as we don't harm someone else the life liberty or property of someone else and I've always reacted quite badly to the government interfering in our daily lives and that's why I'm a liberal and that guides me from first principles in being in this place. And how, how old are you Chris? 34. Right so you're one of our really young 
members of parliament. Yeah. How do you feel that those classic liberal values relate to the young people in our community? I think that young people are essentially classical liberals. Like if you say to young people that you should be free to do whatever you want, as long as it doesn't harm someone else, they are essentially the views that young people hold, but they're also the views of the Liberal Party, or at least what the Liberal Party should believe in, and dating all the way back as that classical liberal streak to you know going back 200 years ago. So I think that they do identify with it, it's just that that's not the way that young people view the Liberal Party. They often view the Liberal Party as the old, stuffy, conservative party that your grandparents want to vote for, as opposed to the young, hip party that says you should be free to do whatever you want so long as it, you don't harm someone else. And certainly you are right that when the Liberal Party is in government, it's, it's, it's recognised as being part of the establishment and part of representing the government and certainly at a federal level mm. we've enjoyed uh, a huge amount of success as a party since the Second World War, since Menzies formed the Liberal Party just after the Second World War. Yeah. Uh, but you are right that, that in a sense the philosophy of the Liberal Party is, is not big government mm. and it's not government, even though we've had some pretty extraordinary years of mm. government control under COVID. We are the party of freedom and individual choice mm. and, and putting faith in the individual to make the best choices for themselves, yes. not having big government imposing choice upon them. Yeah, I think that those on the left have a lot less faith in the individual. I think those on the right have a lot more faith that individuals will make the best decisions. And you see that just this week on First Home Buyer's Choice. We, we believe that individuals, young people predominantly in the scheme, should have the choice between stamp duty or the annual land tax, whereas uh, those on the left, the Labor Party, want the government to make that decision for you. So I think that really it's about, in, it's about the individual, it's about choice, that's uh, what the Liberal Party believes in. It's just about trying to communicate that better, in particular to young people. And the thing, and we'll get to the legislation in a minute, that was almost a perfect segue into the week <laughs> in Parliament, talking about our first home buyer's choice legislation. But mm. the thing I love about young people, and you know, I've got two kids in their 20s, is that, is that young people have this great confidence in themselves. Mm. And so they do want to be making, they do want to push their own way in life, and they do want to be making choices about their future. And our liberal values back them in on that. Yeah, that, that's right. And I think that you'll see more of that coming through in this parliament than pre in previous parliaments as well. When I first got elected a year ago, I was the second youngest uh, member in both chambers. Only Taylor Martin was a year younger than me. Now we have the Liberal Party has six members of parliament under 35. There's myself, there's Taylor... There's Jackie Munro, there's Rory Amon, and there's Steph DePasqua. So we have six. Labor actually have no MPs under 35. We have six. So I think you'll see some of that youthful exuberance coming through in this parliament on the Liberal side, more so than on the Labor side. But not just youthful exuberance. That's a big chunk of mm. our party room who are connected to the mm. issues that are important for yeah. the, the under 30s, which, which is great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there are a huge amount of issues that I think are unique to younger people, like home ownership, like renting. And we've seen that already come up in, in the very early days of, 
of this parliament. So I think it's good to have that uh, representation from young people in the in the Liberal Party, and we need to do better. I haven't seen the exact figures for the state election broken down by demographic. I think that analysis is still to be done. But the Fed, at the most recent federal election, just on a year ago, only one in five Gen Z voted for the Liberal Party, and only one in four millennials. That is a huge uh, section of the Australian community, and we did incredibly poorly in that demographic. Indeed. Now, let's get to the week that we've just had in yep. Parliament. We, we, we're talking about the legislation in the Upper House, your house. Well, yep. What were the bills that came to the Upper House? And, and, and let's talk through them. Should we start with the, the change to our first home buyer's choice yes. legislation? Yes, it was very sad, very sad week for the Liberal Party. I felt like we'd done so much good work in the previous government getting to the point where we could allow young people primarily to choose between paying stamp duty or, or an annual land tax, and it saved people a lot of money. We think that it could get people into the property market up to two and a half years earlier because they didn't have to save up for that stamp duty, and that's now been abolished. So a very sad day yesterday and replaced with the only option Mm -hmm. being a lump sum tax yeah unless the property is under eight hundred thousand dollars which is not which is what about or or just a little over one half of the cost of the median home price in sydney that's right so really not much help at all Mm. and you know, the, the big thing about the policy, our policy, the Dom Perrottet policy mm. of, of paying a land tax, which, which is lost in all of this, is that when you are a young person getting your first property, whether it be a unit or a home, the overwhelming majority turn that property mm. over relatively quickly, around about seven yeah. years. So under the land tax policy of the Liberal Party, you paid a lot less stamp duty on that That's first right. home because seven years of land tax right. was a small fraction of the lump sum stamp duty that is required to be paid under the Labor Party. That's right. And, you know, the break-even point for most people would be more at that 20 or 30-year mark if you look at the amount of uh, land tax you would have to pay to get anywhere near the, the, the lump sum stamp duty. But your first home is rarely ever your forever home. And the completely disingenuous lie from Labor saying it's a forever tax on the family home, when the vast majority of people would be better off through the land tax option. And most people did choose that option. I think about 70%, maybe even higher, we've asked for this information from Labor, from the government. The vast majority of people did choose the land tax because when you give people choice, they don't choose stamp duty. Yeah, and and indeed, look, one of the problems with stamp duty is that it is a disincentive to engage Mm. in transactions. It's actually an economic killer. It's one of the reasons I spoke against stamp duty in Mm. my inaugural uh, speech. Payroll tax is the same. It's a a disincentive to hire people. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, because the Commonwealth doesn't give state governments enough money. Yeah. Uh, it's one of the few sources of revenue for a state government that can run the hospitals and run the schools and all the rest of it. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's one of the most inefficient taxes. Every tax review at a state level or federal level 
either commissioned by Labor or commissioned by us, have said that stamp duty and payroll tax are two of the most inefficient taxes uh, levied anywhere in the Commonwealth. Even the Henry Tax Review, great reading, in 2010, commissioned by a Labor federal government, basically said we have to get rid of payroll and stamp duty. They're two of the most inefficient taxes. They're, they're unfair, they're inefficient, they're, they're inequitable, they should be abolished and replaced by by more efficient taxes. In our introduction, mm. we didn't say that you do have a degree in economics That's right. and a master's of management. That's correct. So yeah. you're 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 very financially literate, which is which yes. is a great thing to have. Don't ask me about the law though, you know. Great thing to have great thing to have as a member of parliament. Yes. <laughs> well, it wasn't just the sad repeal mm. of our stamp duty mm. choice legislation for first home buyers this week. It was also the, the change to the Constitution mm. with regard to the supposed protection of water yeah. assets. How did you see that? Uh, I think it was a complete stunt, but it wasn't even a good stunt. They stuffed up the stunt. So the stunt was enshrining Sydney and Hunter Water in the Constitution, which was essentially just a, an election gimmick run by Minns and the Labor Party. But then they didn't really do their homework. They came to Parliament saying they wanted to enshrine an asset in the constitution that was never at risk. We never had any intention of privatising Sydney. I'd been in Parliament for eight years. I'd yeah. never heard one person even suggest no. that we would privatise <laughs> right. that we would privatise water assets. But they stuffed up the stunt because two thirds of the water used in New South Wales isn't from Sydney or Hunter Water. It's from Water New South Wales. Even Warragamba Dam, that iconic asset that we all that we all know and love, wouldn't be protected by this legislation that went through this week. So it's the stunt a stunt of all stunts, but not even well done. Well, two two aspects of the stunt that I mm. want to point out is, first of all, when they said we'd protect Sydney Waters assets, I guarantee 99.9% of, of the residents of Sydney would have assumed that Warragamba yes, Dam was included right. yeah. as an asset of Sydney Water. So that's point number one. But the second thing is that many people don't realise that our New South Wales Constitution mm. is like any other Act of Parliament. Yeah. Yeah, it can right. be changed by another Act of Parliament. So this so-called protection is not like a constitutional Commonwealth protection which requires yeah. uh, a referendum to change. Mm -hmm. Chris means tomorrow could bring forward another Act of Parliament changing the Constitution back to yeah. where it was before. It's no extra protection at all. And it's also just not the right place to have these sort of protections. The New South Wales Constitution, similar to the Federal Constitution, they're a rule book. They're not a particularly interesting reading. They're not political documents. They don't have grand declarations like other constitutions about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's and all, all about setting equal. up the parliament, setting up the ministry, setting That's up the right. machinery of government, setting up it's the government. It's very dull. It is incredibly dull. Uh, maybe you'll find but it necessary. interesting. Dull, dull but necessary. That's right. <laughs> yeah, so no, a complete, a complete stunt, but not even well done. <laughs> and then the Government Sector Finance Amendment Bill, mm -hmm. which also was in your house, that was really another stunt. About the grants, you mean? Yes. Or, yeah, well, essentially they just, by legislation, were enshrining what we were already doing by regulation. A lot of the heavy lifting was done by the previous government when we were in power about more transparency. It was already being done, but they just wanted to do it by legislation. Um, in my inaugural speech, I spoke about cracking down on pork barrelling, and I think pork barrelling is wrong 
it's economically wrong, but I think it's also morally wrong. But we were already engaged in that space in in cracking down on pork barrelling. And look, one thing that you may not remember the former state Labor government, but during the 16 years of Labor from 1995 to Mm. 2011, areas like mine on the North Shore got absolutely Mm. nothing. Yeah. When I say nothing, I mean zero. Mm. Our schools were run down. We got nothing in terms of our roads. We got nothing in terms of our transport infrastructure. There was just nothing from the state government. Yeah. We were truly the forgotten people. Yes. Now, unlike Labor, when they were last in state government, in the 12 years of the coalition government, we built huge amounts mm. of state-funded infrastructure hospitals, schools, and so on in Labor voting areas as well as coalition areas. So this this sort of false narrative around the, the idea that the coalition government was somehow pork-barrelling in everything they did was really, again, another Labor lie. That's right, and you even see that with Westinvest. The vast majority of funds that went into Westinvest were not in our electorates. They were in, like, the Canterbury-Bankstown LGA or, you know, Campbelltown LGA or, or areas like that, that the vast majority of electorates in those areas are not safe yeah. in liberal seats. But Wyong, so we were investing in Labor electorates Indeed, too. but Wyong Hospital, Maitland yeah. Hospital, we built a whole lot of mm-hmm. major hundreds of millions of dollars yeah. of infrastructure in Labor voting areas, right. not discriminating against them on the way in which they vote. Yeah. No, that, that's right. I think we, we governed for, for everyone and we had a huge infrastructure pipeline that, that benefited people from, from right across uh, the, the state. But I think when Labor get in, they only look after their own electorates and that's why they're cancelling something like the Beaches Link Tunnel because people on the northern beaches haven't voted Labor in a very long time. So the first thing on the chopping block was neglecting the communities up there on the northern beaches. And and I fear as if that's going to continue Mm -hmm. in a whole range of areas where there will be retribution for areas that have voted non-Labor. Yeah. And and they will do that even though they have no clear mandate because they they are not a majority government. No, and this keeps coming up, this mandate issue. And you're right, they are a minority government. They don't have a mandate for a lot of what they they say that they do. The other point that I would make is that with Water New South Wales, they said they didn't have a mandate to enshrine Water New South Wales in the Constitution. What they're essentially saying is that they're not going to do anything in government except those policies they brought to the election. As you know, being a minister in the previous government, is that you make decisions every day in government from minor regulation changes to pieces of legislation to expenditure, the vast majority of which never went to an election. So their whole premise of this mandate is just wrong. And I also think that we also have a mandate, a mandate to our voters, the 35% of the people in New South Wales that voted for us, and our mandate was to protect something like the first home buyer's choice legislation. And we betray our mandate with our voters if we sacrifice our policies for theirs. Which is why we we voted the way we did. Yep. Uh, we didn't support the repeal of that, buy, that first home buyer's choice, yep. which we were giving them, and, and why we will continue to back in the values that have mm. founded our party 
and the policies that we took to the election. It's why we supported the water the, the, the water protection from privatisation because we had no agenda mm -hmm. to privatise and we went to the election saying that. It was a dishonest mm. scare campaign by Labor which we were happy to demonstrate that we, we, we didn't support. That's right. Just on first home buyer's choice, just it's something I wanted to mention before, was that I think what they've, part of the basis of the repeal, and we saw this when they were softening the ground over the last week, was that they were saying that the vast majority of people who opted into the scheme were in properties between $1 million and $1.5 million, as if somehow people that buy properties worth a $1 million are, are rich and undeserving of that assistance. I think that's completely wrong. As we know, a $1 million in Sydney doesn't really get you all that much. It might be a one or a two bedroom apartment. It's certainly, you're not super rich if you've opted in to the first home buyer's choice scheme and you've bought a property worth one or $1.1 million. And I think they are playing uh, class warfare on that as well. Well, not only is that a good point, but it's also important for us to just identify that over a million dollars, any first home buyer gets zero assistance from the men's right. Labor government. Yeah, whereas, whereas they would have got assistance all the way up to properties worth 1.5 million under our deferred stamp duty or land tax yeah, uh, and policy. I, I think it was a popular policy. I mean, certainly we were in government for 12 years. Longevity was an issue at the election, but it was a good government. I don't think that we lost votes because of the first home buyer's choice bill. I think that if anything, it helped us get as many votes and seats that we that we did get. It certainly helped with, with younger voters. So I think it was a popular policy and I yeah completely reject their mandate that they say that they have on repealing it. And just on our government being a good mm. government, the former coalition government, yeah. your early impressions of, of this new New South Wales Labor government, my sense in our house mm. is that they're incredibly not over their brief inexperienced and really struggling. Is that your perception in the upper house? Yeah, I, I think in it completely inexperienced. But also, I, I don't know what the point is of the Minns government. Like when we came to power in 2011, we had a huge program of things that we wanted to achieve. We were sitting until, you know, three in the morning uh, most days. We had, we had all these policies that we, that we wanted to enact. They don't really stand for much. They're not, I don't think they come in with a huge reform agenda there's really not much point to the Minns government. I, I don't think that they, that, they, that they really want to achieve much over the next four years. I don't know what they're going to legislate beyond now Sydney Water and first home buyer's choice repeal. As leader of the House or manager of opposition business, do you know what their agenda is? Because I'm struggling to no, think of what's I, next. I, well, I think rather than a fresh start, their slogan should have been a bad start because yeah. that's what we've been seeing so far. Look, Chris, thanks so much for joining me. You're, you are absolutely one of the rising stars, Thank young you. rising stars of the Liberal Party. So thanks very much for your time Thank today. You for and thanks me. for the chat. Thanks, Alistair. Well, Freya, we've now come to the end of this week's podcast, but we have our segment of bloopers called our Doe Moments. Yes, this is probably the highlight of my week because uh, there's always something entertaining happening when you have Labor trying to lead the state. And look, last week we spoke about Steve Camper, mm. who I like to say is anything but a happy camper <laughs> in the way in which he's performed as, as, as a minister so far. But you might remember that 
Last week, Steve Camper, not only did he do an appalling thing and sack Lee Shearer by mm. a press release, and she was then embarrassed by 2GB ringing her up. When Steve Camper went on radio, he was laughing about it. Yeah. He was laughing about his mistake. Well, we had a very similar incident in Question Time this week mm. when we had a strike by health services union employees. We had hospital services being interrupted mm. by reason of that strike. And Sophie Kotsis, who's the Minister for Industrial Relations, was asked whether she as Minister took responsibility for that situation because Jared Hayes had said that the health services union workers were better off under a coalition government than under a Labor government. And when she was asked whether she took responsibility, she laughed about it. So unprofessional. And the health services union, like we're talking about health, we're talking about lives, we're talking about hospitals that might mean life or death for some people. And, and the quality of our hospitals determine whether you spend six hours in emergency or 24 hours not getting any treatment. And when you have industrial relations ministers that have no regard for the public at all, it it's kind of just rubs me the wrong way. It, look, it's troubling. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it shows how out of depth mm. some of these ministers are. Because do they understand, like when she's standing there in Parliament, like, look, I understand a lot of politicians are out of touch. They're on Macquarie Street. Macquarie Street does matter, but they think that it is the only thing in the world. Is she just out of touch with the reality of hospitals and the necessary function that they perform? And is she so out of touch that she thinks it's okay to laugh about strikes? Like, I don't get it. My question is for the Minister for Health. Do you accept responsibility for the industrial action that is compromising the operation, it's no laughing matter, compromising the operation of hospitals across New South Wales? And if not, then who in the government is responsible? Well, Chris, one of the dough moments of the week seems to be a degree of denial as to union membership. Can you just talk us through that? Yeah, so... There was a motion by Mark Buttigieg, who is basically the in-house lobbyist for the trade union movement in the Legislative Council, and he had a motion attacking Qantas, the various industrial action that's currently before the High Court. So I spoke on that motion, and I think I triggered all of the Labor Party by pointing to this graph that was uh, showing trade union membership over time declining. If you look back in the early 80s, it was at about 50% of the workforce as trade union members. Today, it's about 12% of the workforce overall and only 8% of the private sector workforce. Trade union membership is at all-time lows at only 8%, 8% of the private sector workforce, 12% of the workforce overall, yet it seems to be 100% of those members opposite. But even more interesting was that while cells simultaneously attacking Qantas, we also put in a question on notice to all Labor ministers whether they had chairman's, Qantas Chairman's Lounge membership. And it came back. We're still waiting for the response. I've got, I think, 21 days to respond. But John Graham, the deputy leader of the government in the upper house, has chairman's lounge membership. And it seems a little bit rich that they're being wined and dined in chairman's with 
you know, the champagne and caviar at the same time that they're condemning Qantas in the upper house on industrial action. So definitely one of the dough moments of the week. Ryan Park, I think to an answer to your question, apparently the killer blow was that I said that I think privatisation has, quote, been a very good thing. Ooh, like, <laughs> you know, what scandal. But it gets, it's, it gets even worse. I want to take you back, I want to take you back less than 24 hours to last night. Take you back less than 24 hours. And the Honourable Chris Ruff, that very senior, experienced, senior member of the party. I think they call him a senior member of the Liberal Party. Last night, the Honourable Chris Math, he said, uh, when speaking of privatisation, he said, Mr. Speaker, and I quote, I think it's been a very good thing, end quote. I think it's been a very good thing. Just on, well, just going to privatisation for a minute. Yeah. We built so much of the infrastructure mm. in New South Wales during our 12 years of government based on our asset recycling. Mm. Yeah. And what most people don't realise is that our policy wasn't to recycle assets to go and operate government. Mm. It was recycling assets to then invest them yeah. into better public assets for the community. That's right. And because of asset recycling, we built things like North Connects, West Connects, things like the Metro. We completely transformed this city and this state because of asset recycling. And all of the hospitals, the new schools yep. and so on. People forget that when Labor was last in government in New South Wales, they closed 90 That's public right. schools. That's right. We have built, I think, 150. The coalition did. So it's a big difference if you manage your assets properly, mm -hmm. as Susan Carter said last week about people turn over their real estate assets to buy a better house, mm. really what the New South Wales coalition government was doing something very similar. Yeah, that, that's right. And I think that by them saying that they're completely against asset recycling and then also saying that they want to get rid of the wages cap, I fear that in the future nothing will be built because there will just be no cash available for important infrastructure projects with those two things working uh, simultaneously. But we're already now seeing a redefinition of what privatisation is. Mm. Labor are now suggesting that if you sell a government asset, that isn't privatisation, <laughs> yes, even if you rich. sell it to the private sector. It's a bit rich. When we were in government, they called asset recycling privatisation. Franchising was privatisation, outsourcing was privatisation, leasing was privatisation. Now that they're in government, they sell off land to developers. Apparently that's not privatisation. So when we do it, it's privatisation. When they do it, it's merely selling surplus land. So asset recycling mm -hmm. was actually, if a government asset was sold, it had to be, it effectively went into a special fund mm which could only be spent on a new asset if that asset, that government asset, returned more than $1 for every dollar spent mm. on that asset to the New South Wales economy, so, or, or what they call a BCR of more than one. So asset recycling was uh, a policy where if government assets were sold, they couldn't be used to operate the government. Mm. They could only be used for a reinvestment of new government assets. And that showed because on the balance sheet, by the time we left government, we had far more assets, almost double the amount of assets than when we came into government. So this lie that we were selling everything, including the kitchen sink, and not reinvesting it just doesn't bear out in the actual figures. The value of the net assets owned by the New South Wales government 
improved by over $100,000 million during the life yeah. of the former coalition government. Now, now, Chris, one of the funny dough moments was somebody cast aspersions upon your heritage. <laughs> well, that's right. Mark Latham, leader of One Nation in the Upper House, called me the godson of Milton Friedman. It was a debate about government expenditure and... I certainly have absolutely no reservations about being called the godson of Milton Friedman. Even the, uh, uh, the, um, the, the godson of Milton Friedman down there. The Milton Friedman, of course, the, the founder of the Chicago School of Economics, one of the great hmm. economists of all time, um, certainly not someone that Mark Latham doing political economy at Sydney University <laughs> would have admired when he when he was studying economics. No, a former leader of the Labor Party federally and and now he gives some grief in the in the upper house. Uh, I'm not sure if he's a Friedmanite. Maybe I'm not sure if he's a Keynesian either, but Mark is Mark. <laughs> <laughs> well, Freya, thanks so much for helping put together this week's uh, podcast. It was great to have Chris Rath. It was. He's very engaging. Rising star of the Liberal Party right. and and a, and a, and, a, and, a, and a someone of real depth and substance. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it was also interesting just to talk about last week in Parliament, the week that was, mm. and I'm really looking forward now to some of our coming podcasts. I'm hoping to have some really interesting guests. Uh, on our podcast in the coming weeks. That's right. And thank you, Alistair. It's been a great podcast again. I wonder if we'll get a shout-out in question time next sitting week. Well, you know, obviously Chris will, will listen to it many times. He's probably listening now. And I'm not talking about Chris Rath. <laughs> thank you, everyone, so much for listening.